Amen. Amen. God is faithful. Amen. So thankful for his faithfulness. Thank you for being here today. Uh, we had a great service at 9 o'clock. The house was full and it was awesome. But you know what? I can just sense the Spirit of God in this service as well. And I know God has a word for you today. And uh, I'm so thankful that I get to be here and share that word with you. Well, here's what we've done the last couple of months. We had an awesome Mother's Day, didn't we? Woo! Man! You, you ladies received probably the primo gift. I, I, you know, I, I haven't really done a, a survey of churches in Fort Smith, but I, don't, I, I, I doubt very seriously if any church gave out as nice of a Mother's Day gift as we gave out. Come on, people. Wasn't that great? Awesome coffee mug. Wow. And then last Sunday, Father's Day, what did we do? Maybe we, you know, best Father's Day ever. We, we, uh, we gave the fathers an adequate gift parallel to the mother's gift so that husbands and wives could sit down every morning and sip coffee together. And look at each other gooey-eyed. And fall back in love with each other. And tell each other how special they are. How many of y'all been doing that? Well, I've been waiting to preach this message after Mother's Day and Father's Day, having harmony in your home. <laughs> Here's the real title, How to Deal with Conflict. Okay, what do you think about that? Because you know what? No matter how good of a marriage you think you have, there will always be conflict. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse number 16. Live in harmony with one another. Y'all read that aloud with me. One, two, three. Live in harmony with one another. Sherry, leave that up on the board just for a second. While specifically I'm going to talk to husbands and wives today, talking about the home and living in harmony, if, if you're not married, if you're single, if you're a teenager, uh, if, you're, if you're divorced, if, if, uh, if your spouse has passed away, this sermon still applies to you. Because the Bible is telling us that we need to live in harmony with other people. That means people in our home, yes. People in our family, you better believe it. People at work, yes. And even people in the church. We are to live in harmony with one another. Now that word harmony is a very interesting word. We get our English word arm from the Greek word for harmony. In fact, if you look at harmony, you can actually see the letters A-R-M. Arm is in harmony, isn't it? Huh? And the stem Greek word for harmony actually means joint. Okay? So our arm is connected to our body through the joint, which is the shoulder. All right? Because the joint is there, joining the arm to the body, everything works harmoniously. All right? Are you with me? Likewise, the same way when you have a singing group as good as ours, and aren't they good? We love our praise team. Man, they do a fantastic job. When you have a soprano, a tenor, a bass, and an alto, and they're all singing their individual parts, and they're on pitch, okay? They're singing on tune. They're singing their note. What do you have? You have a beautiful harmony, 
But what if you had a group of singers, four, five, six, or eight, and they were all singing tenor? Eh, it really wouldn't sound that good. Or if they were all singing bass, man, you could be thumping along, you know, but it just wouldn't sound right. If everyone sang exactly the same notes, we would have boring unison. But when everybody sings a different note, it's a harmonious sound, is it not? In a marriage, you've got a bass and an alto. I'm not going to say who is which. Huh? That is, you've got two people with different perspectives, with different backgrounds. Come on, you've got to get going, guys. With a different way of looking at things. Huh? One of the partners is in a man's body. The other one is in a woman's body. One of them has the mind of a man. It's just a single track, baby. <laughs> the other one has the mind of a woman. There's intersections and overpasses and <laughs> everything is going on. Are you with me? When you have those two minds and those two bodies and those two people, there will never be boring unison. Amen? And I don't know why it is, but opposites attract. God puts them together and then the sparks fly, right? Are you with me? But neither should there be continual discord. All right? Perhaps the greatest challenge of a marriage or a family is how to resolve marriage conflicts and how to overcome differences so that we have harmony rather than discord in our home. Can it be done? It can be. Why? Because the Bible says live in harmony with everyone. But how do we do it? Or let me put it another way. How can we iron out our differences without getting burned? I thought that was sweet, man. <laughs> really, there are three ways of responding to marital conflict, and I'd like to illustrate those three ways by using Bible stories that are found in the book of 1 Kings. And the first response to conflict is clamming up. Look at me, clamming up. You know what that is? You're zipping it, you're locking it, you're throwing away the key. This seems to be the preferred method of an immature and immoral King Ahab. I'm going to read a story found in 1 Kings chapter 21. It's going to be on the board. You can look in your Bible if you'd like to. Verses 1 through 5, 1 Kings 21. Here's the story. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's very close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now let me stop right there and just do a little interpretation. Here is, here's the most powerful king in the, in the country at that time, and he is giving a mandate to a peasant, a citizen. He is saying to this citizen, all right, your, your, 
your plot of land is right next to my palace, and I really want it because I want to grow a vegetable garden. So give me your land, and I'll be kind to you. I'll give you another piece of property that is equal to or greater in value, or you can put a price tag on your land, and I'll give you the money. But Naboth said, no, I'm not going to sell the family farm. And he was actually doing the biblical thing because in the Bible, it tells the Israelites, don't get rid of the family property. You keep the family farm. So Naboth was just doing the right thing, the biblical thing, and he said, no, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Let's see the response to that. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry. Because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give the inheritance of my ancestors. And so he lay on his bed, and he refused to eat. And then came his wonderful, compassionate, lovely, beautiful, nice wife, Jezebel. She came in and asked him, why are you so sullen, and why are you not eating? And she probably said it just about like that, all right? Now, the argument here is not between husband and wife. It's not between Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, they went on to be partners in crime, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the thing to notice is how Ahab responds to conflict in relationships. Notice the words used here to describe how he felt when Naboth told him no. He was sullen. He was angry, he was sulking, and he refused to eat. Let me put it like this. Ahab simply clammed up. He moped around. His lower lip was touching the ground. He was acting like a little kid on the playground who doesn't get their way. I know a lot of people who use this as their primary method of responding to potential conflict in their home. They just act like a big old baby. They clam up, they refuse to talk, and you know what? Problems never get solved. They just get swept under the carpet. Now, I, I doubt you're going to be honest with me, but how many of you in this room have ever done that? Okay, I'm going to wait until at least half of you raise your hands. Because half of us have at least responded like that. We just act like big old babies when we don't get, get our way. And I will, I will tell you there is one person in my marriage relationship who has acted this way before. <laughs> and it's me. I've puffed up and I've sent a barrage of nonverbal signals to Angie. Because I'm moping around. I'm sullen. I'm not talking, and I'm secretly hoping she's going to get the message and come and say, baby, it's okay. Mama, take care of it. Hadn't happened yet. When I was studying for this, I went back to one of my psychology books that I had in seminary, and yes, they taught psychology in seminary. I'm kind of, I kind of feel like Dr. Phil right here. Instead of Brother Will, I'm kind of feeling like Dr. Phil. Here's, here's the, the clinical diagnosis of this. It's, it's a thinly veiled attempt to manipulate by nonverbal means. 
When you clam up, that's what you're doing. You're trying to manipulate in the relationship. And, and I can hardly think of any good that comes from clamming up. So, babe, I'm going to stop doing it, all right? And you might think, well, could there be anything worse in a relationship? Yes. Not only is there clamming up, number two, there's blowing up. And really, this was the preferred method of Ahab's wonderful wife, Jezebel. Let me read a story found in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, now Ahab went and told Jezebel everything that Elijah the prophet had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal by the sword. Okay, this is 1 Kings 19. If you go back one chapter to chapter 18, you read about that, that big conflict on the top of Mount Carmel between the lone prophet of God, Elijah, and the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah, just, he, he called the people to attention, and he said, okay, let's serve the real God. The real God is going to bring fire down from heaven. And he allowed the prophets of Baal to go first and try to cause fire to fall on their sacrifice, but no fire fell because there ain't no Baal. <laughs> and then the prophet of God got down and prayed, and after his prayer, God sent fire down. And he showed in a very miraculous way that there is only one God. Well, Elijah said, let's kill all these prophets of God, or prophets of Baal, excuse me. And they took the 450 prophets of Baal and they killed them all with a sword. Ahab is telling Jezebel what happened here. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. In other words, it's a death threat. You killed my boys, I'm going to kill you. What was Elijah's reply? Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. I don't suppose that was the first time, nor will it be the last time, a man ran from a woman. Jezebel was on a murderous rampage, and it proved very destructive. Now, I want everybody to listen to me. Blowing up, loud, angry arguments are always destructive. I don't care if it's, it's with your wife or with your kids or a family member or a church member. Nothing good comes out of blowing up and having a loud argument. We lose our tempers and we say more than we should. And in the process, we are wounding the other person. And those words cannot be taken back. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4. Stop being bitter and angry and mad at others. Don't yell at one another or curse each other or ever be rude. Instead, be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at me. Let's take a little poll right here. How many of our homes and our families and our relationships would be 100% better if we just did what those two verses told us to do? 
I mean, what if we did stop being bitter? What if we refused to become angry and mad at others? What would happen if we refused to yell at other, other people and curse at other people and instead used our words to build one another up? How many of our homes would be a better place to live? Exactly. Scott Stanley is a part of a research team at University of Denver that has identified certain factors that accurately detect whether a marriage is going to make it or not. And he said, almost in every case, marriages that failed, these two factors were prevalent. And the first one is escalation. He said escalation occurs when a person says something negative and his or her spouse responds with even a harsher statement. This leads to an argument that spirals to greater levels of anger and frustration. And he says, you know what? It's something that is just natural and innate within all of us. For whenever we are criticized, our very first impulse is to defend ourselves and to do that by saying something just as bad or just as negative to the one who is attacking us. He said we, we lash out with our words and they can be harsh. But they're also very destructive words. For example, a, a person may say to their spouse, well, if that's the way you feel, maybe I'll just move out. And the spouse responds by saying, don't let me stand in the way. And what has happened? It's escalated. The argument has escalated. It's, it's gotten out of control. Stanley refers to a couple that he counseled. And, and, and all they were doing is discussing family chores, like who's going to do the dishes, who's going to vacuum, who's going to dust, who's going to carry out the garbage, who's going to do the laundry. And he said within two minutes of that discussion, they were threatening divorce. Oh, it happens. It happens. This is what he said, and I, I'm going to read it because you need to listen to this. He said, they made the mistake of threatening their very commitment to the relationship, a very common and destructive battle strategy, he said. No matter how angry you become or how much pain you are feeling, it is never appropriate to punish your mate by threatening divorce. You just take divorce out of the equation, you know? When, when I'm counseling someone before they get married, I try to talk them out of it, number one. Y'all loosen up a little bit. You know, but they're all gooey-eyed and in love. <laughs> but here's what I tell them. I will not do your marriage unless you can sit here and tell me that you're going to take divorce out of the equation before you even get into it. Because you see, when you take divorce out of the equation, you've got to work things out, man. <laughs> and, and, and when problems start, you can't allow them to escalate and spiral out of control. The, the second deadly factor in marriage, according to Dr. Stanley, is invalidation. In the simplest terms, this means putting each other down or calling each other names or making personal comments or insults about one another. It includes ridiculing others and being sarcastic to your mate. You invalidate the other person. You belittle them and you attack their self-worth. And this is no way to deal with conflict. You can't blow up. You can't allow the problem to escalate. You, you, you don't invalidate. So instead of clamming up and blowing up, 
I'd like to recommend the third response to dealing with problems in your marriage. And that is, you need to wise up. Hmm? You need, come on, man. That's pretty good, isn't it? Don't clam up, don't blow up. Wise up. And our story here is in 1 Kings chapter 3. The Lord appeared to the young King Solomon. And he said to King Solomon, remember this story? God said to Solomon, I will grant you one desire, one wish. You ask for one thing, and I will give you whatever you ask for. Now, guys, think about this. What if the God of the universe said that to you? What if he made this deal to you? Zane, you can have anything you want, buddy. You just name it, and I'll give it to you. What if, Dallas, whatever you want, you can have. You name it, God's going to give it to you. What would you ask for? Wealth? Power? Prestige? Arnold Schwarzenegger body? I mean, I don't know. What, what would you ask for? It's, it's interesting. It's interesting what Solomon asked for. You know what it is. What was it? God, give me wisdom. How, how can I lead this people? I'm, I'm like a little kid who doesn't even know where to go myself. God, I need wisdom to lead your people. And here's what God said in verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 3. He said, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be anyone like you again. And Solomon became the wisest man who ever lived. You know, the side deal here, God gave him everything else too. God gave him power, wealth, everything he wanted. God gave it to him. Out of that wisdom that God gave Solomon... He wrote the book of Proverbs. And I don't know, I've told you this, haven't I? I love Proverbs. I'm reading it every day, every month I'll read through Proverbs. I know there's, we've only had six months, but I've already read through Proverbs seven times this year. Man, I love it. It's liquid gold. Proverbs is so good. And here's what I'd like to share with you. I'd like to share with you two verses from the wise man out of the book of Proverbs that you need to clamp on your refrigerator at home. You need to put these two verses in your pockets or your purse. You need to put them on your nightstand, memorize them, and live by them as a family. The first one is in Proverbs 12, 18. It says, reckless words pierce like a sword. Now, I'm stepping back to see the balcony too. When was the last time you were pierced by a sword? Anybody? Anybody? Have you ever been pierced by a sword? Okay. I thought that was unfamiliar. How about this? When was the last time you were stuck with a needle? Giving a shot. People, you're going to have to help me out. I mean, I feel like this is a solo performance up here. Come on. Let's get together. In the last year, how many were stuck by a needle? Raise your hand. Okay. Do you look at it when they stick you? You need to sometimes. Just so they can pick you up off the floor after it's over with. What, what, I started looking, and what is amazing to me is how quick that needle goes in your skin. I mean, it just, it just, it's there. Nothing to stop it. I mean, it is so sharp. It just, it's right there. That's what this verse is saying. This verse says, reckless words pierce the heart that quick. They can be that destructive. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, let me give you the Will Harmon interpretation of this verse. I think this verse is saying this. 
Bad words harm. Good words heal. So let's do more healing than we do hurting. The second verse is Proverbs 15, 18. It says, losing your temper causes a lot of trouble. <laughs> Dude, I read Proverbs at night. Right before I go to bed, I'm laying in bed, and I got my phone, and I'm uh, Proverbs, uh, whatever chapter it is for the day, and I'll, I'll do this every night. I'll be reading, and I'll read a verse like this. Losing your temper causes a lot of trouble. And I just, I just got to laugh. And I'll say, isn't that the truth? And Angie says, what are you talking about? Yeah. But isn't that the truth? You, you tell me the last time losing your temper caused you great joy and gain and good things happened. Uh, it doesn't. Losing your temper causes a lot of trouble. But you know what? Staying calm settles the issue. So how can we stay calm and turn a troubled marriage into a harmonious home? Well, I've got time to do this. I'm going to throw out seven very simple ways you can do this. Take your bulletin to the back, get a pen, write these seven things down, and start implementing these seven things in your marriage and in your relationship. Number one, how can we turn a troubled marriage into a harmonious home? Number one, make a conscious decision to keep your anger under control. How many of you have a hot temper? Y'all are getting better about responding. The rest of you are just lying, all right? I think all of us under certain degrees has a temper. But you know what? It is possible with God's help to control that temper. Amen? You can control it. You don't have to lose your temper. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 11 says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. A wise man controls his temper. He doesn't blow his lid. God can help you do that. I told the first service years ago, I had a guy in my church that, man, the guy was as good as gold. He would give you the shirt off his back, literally. He was the kindest, most compassionate man, uh, generous. He was so generous and had such a loving spirit, but he also had a hot temper. I mean, just like that, his lid could explode. And it, it usually happened while he was driving. He could have pretty bad road rage, all right? And he could just lose his temper. And he would explode and he would say things and get angry and yell at people. And then feel horrible about it. Are you with me? So every Sunday, every single Sunday, he would come to my office before the service and he'd just mope in. Just, and I knew what he was going to say. He said, preacher... Preacher, I need you to pray for me. I did it again. This past week, I just lost my temper, and I yelled, and, man, I, I regret it so bad, and I feel so bad about it. He said, I, I pray every day, God help me, and I know God's working on me and helping me, but I did it again this week. And I said, buddy, the important thing is you recognize it, and you're working on it. And so I'd pray with him, and I'd love on him. I said, just do better next week. Next Sunday, he'd be back in my office. You know, just did it again. But we kept praying about it, and he kept, and I knew he was working on it. I'd see him during the week say, how you doing? And he said, man, I'm doing good. I'm working on it. And you know what? It ended up being every other Sunday. And then once a month. 
And then once ever, once in a while, he'd say, you know, I'm doing so good, but you know what? I, I blew it. And I said, you know what? That's okay, buddy. You're working on it and you're getting better. And I'm telling you, you can control your temper. But you got to make a conscious effort to do it. Number two, learn to call a ceasefire. Now, I know this is not a normal sermon that Will Harmon preaches, but I think it's applicable for today. And you, you need to understand that there are times in your relationship with your spouse, you just need to call a ceasefire. I mean, y'all are getting into it, and your voices are getting loud, and, and it's escalating, and you're saying things you shouldn't be saying. You just need to back off and say, time out. I think we both need to just take a breath and think about what we're doing. In fact, let's call a ceasefire. Let's pray about this. And let's don't say anything else about it until tomorrow night. Let's go out to eat at a public restaurant. <laughs> where we can sit across the table from each other and civilly discuss this matter. Learn to call a ceasefire. Number three, you need to learn to apologize. We talked about this last week on our Father's Day message. There are grown men who have never said, I'm sorry. You need to get over that. You, you need to be able to say, I'm sorry, especially to your spouse. If you were in the wrong, you need to apologize. You need to accept the blame. I mean, half of it's yours anyway. Probably 75% of it. So learn to apologize. Number four, don't let problems simmer. You know, I, I think we need to grow up to the point where we are mature enough to be able to sit down and talk through things openly with a minimum of emotions. E Ephesians chapter 4 says to speak truthfully to each other. Now, this is hard. It, it's kind of hard for me to do because I hate conflict. Anybody else out there hate conflict? Dude, I'm telling you, I hate conflict. I, I would rather just not deal with it than, than, to, than to have the conflict. I mean, I, please, why in the world can't we just all love each other? and get along with each other, and do the right thing, and speak good into each other's life? I mean, why, why can't that happen? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't. And there is conflict. But you know what? If all you're doing is putting it on the back burner and you don't deal with it, sooner or later you are going to have to deal with it. And by that time, it is festered so bad that the mess is going to get everywhere. Number five. Are you writing these down? Okay. Number five. Remember that you don't always have to say everything that you're thinking. Now, if you come to church on Wednesday nights and, and I'm preaching, I've been preaching out of Proverbs, and a couple of weeks ago, I preached on this very thing. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11 says, A fool, a fool uttereth all his mind. That is, a fool can't keep his mouth shut. And he says everything he's thinking. I, I read an article recently by a woman whose name was Mary Clark. And she said that she had always had this constant need to tell everybody what to do and how to do it. Kind of a bossy britches, all right? She just, I don't know, I guess she thought that was her spiritual gift. And she said her entire married, married life, she was married to a guy by the name of Al, her entire life she just felt the, the impulse to advise Al on how to do everything. Especially his driving. 
And then one day she was in the car alone and she was listening to a broadcast by a Christian author named Elizabeth Elliot. And here's what Elizabeth Elliot said two weeks ago on Wednesday night. I quoted this. Her advice was, never pass up an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Isn't that great? Mary Clark was convicted about that. And she said, you know what? I need to learn how to do that. I really do. I need to do that, especially, especially with my husband. Now, she had been married to, to Al for two, two years. And uh, every day for two years, every single day, she had said to Al, Al, pick up your clothes. Put them in the dirty laundry. She was a neat freak. And they called him Big Al for a reason. He wasn't. So every morning... Every single morning for two years, she had been saying, Al, pick up your clothes. Al, pick up those clothes. And you got, ladies, please close your ears, because I'm just talking to the guys right now. Guys, you know how it is. After a while, I thought y'all would get it with just that. Are you serious? <laughs> After enough harping, you know, he would. But, I mean, it was, just, it was going from bad to worse. So she had heard that advice, never pass up opportunity to keep your mouth shut. So you know what? The next morning, she didn't say a word to Al. She picked him up herself and put him in the dirty clothes. And she said, you know, it didn't hurt nearly as bad as I thought it was going to. <laughs> in fact, she said... I had a feeling of biblical servanthood come over me. And then she said, you know what? The incredible thing happened. I, I just kept my mouth shut much more. I, I, I didn't harp. I didn't nag. I didn't complain. And the amazing transformation was that, that Al started getting involved in household chores. And he went out and did yard work that he had been neglecting for months. And he helped her sand a chair. And before the week was over, he was picking up his own clothes in the bathroom. Proverbs 17, 27 says, it makes a lot of sense to be a person of few words and to stay calm. Even fools seem smart when they're quiet. <laughs> Proverbs 12, 16, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up trouble, but love overlooks the wrongs that others do. Remember, you don't always have to say what you're thinking. Number six, be willing to agree to disagree. Because you know what? You're going to disagree. 1983, 1983, we got married. That's been 36 years ago. And believe it or not, there are a few things that Miss Angie and I do not agree on. In fact, there are even biblical passages that we interpret differently. Hebrews chapter 12, the great cloud of witnesses. She looks at it differently than I do. She's been wrong all these years and I haven't been able to... <laughs> Listen to me, I have always been proud 
to have a wife who knows her own mind. And she don't take no bunk off nobody. I'm proud of that. I've often said if two people agree on everything, one of them's not necessary. You think that's what I was going to say? No. If two people agree on everything, they double their chances to be wrong. Huh? Number seven, last one. You need to keep tight accounts with the Lord. Most of the conflicts that we have with other people are not fundamentally horizontal. They're vertical. Are you with me? If my heart isn't right with the Lord, it probably isn't going to be very positive around my mate. The reason Ahab was bitter towards Naboth and the reason Jezebel hated Elijah so much was that their own hearts were out of fellowship with God. Most of the time, if I become angry or irritable or out of sorts with Angie, it's because my heart isn't right with the Lord. Huh? I suppose that 80 or 90% of our conflicts could be minimal, minim, minimized if we would just get on our knees and into the Word and our own hearts right with God. And that's what I'm going to suggest that we do today. I'm going to suggest that we come down to the altar as husbands, as wives, as family members, and we turn our homes into a harmonious place of Christian fellowship. If we're going to enjoy healthy relationships, we can't clam up, we can't blow up, we need to wise up. And if we do that, we can iron out our differences without being burned. So, would you join me after I pray this morning here at the altar? Pray for your own family, pray for your marriage. If your heart is not right with God, let's get it right today. And pray for the families of our churches. Okay? There are families in this church today who need your prayers, so come and pray for them. Heavenly Father.